You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. All right, what is up, everyone? Welcome to yet another episode of Cure to Consumption. I am your host, Lance Lambert. So stoked to have you all with us this week. We have a phenomenal guest coming on the show just now, which I'm very excited to have. A good friend, uh, very successful woman in the industry, Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire is going to be joining us out of Florida. And we're going to be talking about all things cannabis, especially the movement around legalization as of late uh, from a legal perspective. So I would jump on in just now. Yes. Hi, Lance. This is Cheryl Murray Powell Esquire. Yes. I'm so excited to be joining you today. Thank you for inviting me on. Cheryl, it is so great to have you. (laughs) Sorry, we were uh, jumping around studios really quick there, but I appreciate you jumping on with us. And how are things on the East Coast right now? How's the East Coast going? Yeah. Yeah, well, a lot's going on on the East Coast, especially when it comes to marijuana. We have a lot of marijuana commissions forming, uh, you know, Virginia, Connecticut, New York, New Jersey, um, Alabama uh, just uh, formed there. So uh, a lot of good legislation last session, which is leading to a more formalized process for um, cannabis on the medical side as well as on the adult use side. So as you know, I'm a cannabis agricultural and dietary supplement attorney. Yeah, uh, I'm also a business development manager for Creative Services. So it's a 45-year-old investigations company. So we're supporting um, cannabis companies to get you know on board with traditional business in the area of background screening as well as due diligence um, as they're finding investors in their company. So really excited about that new venture. But just looking at the legalization front. Um, a lot of our work is done. Um, yeah. Not everything, but a lot of our work is done. We can pat ourselves on the back that uh, <laughs> most of the country, a uh, uh, super majority of the country is legal, and we're seeing a lot of movement on the adult use side. So uh, yeah. I'm looking to these um, marijuana commissions to and, and equity commissions. There's a lot of social equity commissions being formed as well. So I'm looking for them to um, use some of the older markets as as good models for that. We saw in California a consolidation of, of three different commissions into a single one, the Department of um, Cannabis uh, Commission for California. Yeah. So that, I think, was a step in the right direction as far as that harmonization. And, again, we're seeing, you know, the Oregon um, Cannabis Control Commission's changing its name, um, the or- Oregon um, Cannabis um, Liquor Liquor and Cannabis um, uh, Commission um, just making some strides as far as what they're responsible for doing. So we're still at the point where there's a different model in each state, but we are seeing where um, the eastern states are learning from best practices from out west. Um, I actually had the pleasure of speaking with Portland, Oregon's cannabis supervisor, Dashita Dawson, um, last week, and she's really encouraged and, and, you know, shared that, you know, she's available as a resource. She is working with some of these Eastern um, uh, stakeholders in order to share some of the best practices. So we really appreciate, you know, all the knowledge transfer that's happening from the West to the East. 
Yeah, that's a good, you make an excellent point. And I know you've been around uh, the industry and very much been in tune with it before Florida, your home state uh, came online. So a lot of these trends you've been tracking. And I think that's a good thing that a lot of people, even going back to your point on, you know, the country being at a point of super majority. I mean, we're talking about 40 plus states. I, I think it's kind of trivial still. I bring up that Texas even has a program and people are just taken aback. And I'm like, oh, yeah, no, they have a compassionate care program. They actually launched Absolutely. several years ago, right? And Georgia as well. I was just yeah. um, a, a few week, weeks ago, I was at the Georgia Access to uh, Medical Cannabis Commission's meeting where they announced their, you know, first grouping of license holders. So, you know, what that means is patients will have access. They indicated there will be another round of of licenses being issued. Um, So it was great to be in the room when that announcement took place and just seeing that, you know, a a traditionally um, conservative state such as Georgia Georgia is making strides wanting to get um, cannabis um, to their patient community in the state of Georgia. So I commend them for that first bite of the apple, and I'm looking forward to the next wave of licenses and we're definitely looking to see more diversity um, as, as they move forward. Florida, as you're aware, has only had one round of applications and that was in 2015. So that's a a travesty. It's really time for them to allow for other uh, participants to get involved. And that's a, that's an excellent point. Maybe we can kind of dive in that, dive into that right quick, because I know it was not just Florida, but also uh, Illinois that very much had it. So almost kind of polar opposite, right? You mentioned, uh, you know, an established market like Oregon, um, you right. know, they, they, it, it was limitless license back when it first started. And we saw the repercussions of that, right? I mean, I'm total fan of capitalism, but we saw a point of saturation. I remember top shelf going for a dollar a gram wholesale, you know, talking $500, or so a pound, which is crazy because you're starting to really kind of bounce off the rev limiter as far as any margins for the grower and in the chain of custody. And then Oklahoma did the same, but then obviously they kind of recognized that wasn't the most advantageous route to go and is pulling back. But it is interesting. I think, you know, you're in one of those markets, Florida. I was, I was so kind of caught off guard that they had these stipulations way back in the start. And I know there's been several iterations and you, you follow it way better than I do admittedly, but I remember that you had to be a a very well-established nursery even to apply for license. Right. And it really was restricted. 30 year nurserymen have 400,000 plants. And and even though there have been changes legislatively, when you look at the actions of the department of health and, and the licenses that were issued as late as 2019, they came from that same round. So there hasn't been a new opportunity. So even though the law changed, the allocations of licenses came from that original round. (laughs) Those um, exclusionary um, found to be um, uh, just exclusionary and and, uh, uh, discriminatory um, practices as far as how they were allocating licenses. So they haven't um, departed from that. I'm encouraged because they announced that there should be some movement in Florida, and they did also announce that, you know, the black farmer's license will be prioritized, which is, nice. which is a good thing. But, you know, when we look at our industry as industry participants, you know, we want opportunity for everyone, whether they're a farmer, whether they're a business owner, whether they're, you know, a micro business. So, yes, that's a step in the right direction because it was promised back in 2017 that a um, black farmer's license would be given out October 3rd, 2017, and we still haven't seen that. (laughs) But even with that said, we can't stop there. Like, what about our our, um, urban 
farmers, but our, our you know, uh, business owners and yeah. people who want to get into the space. We still have a vertically integrated um, environment um, in Florida. So, you know, we're someone who's been a store owner for years would do a great job of owning a dispensary. They don't have that opportunity unless they partner with someone and have the funds uh, available to uh, cultivate as well as process, as well as transport, as well as infuse. Um, all of those things ha- are tied to a single license type, which I think is a bit archaic. Um, yeah. And I'm hoping that um, with this new movement that's been announced by the Depart- Florida Department of Health, um, that we'll see um, a market correction um, here, like we've seen a market correction in Oregon where they fix that saturation issue. And yeah. as you mentioned, Oklahoma. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thank goodness Oklahoma figured it out sooner than later. It literally took years for Oregon to figure it out. And again, a lot right. of frustration for growers up there. I know guys that, that flip their fields to hemp so that they could cross state lines and I don't blame them for it. You know, obviously, you know, the price per pound is substantially less, um, maybe comparable on yeah. top shelf, you, you know, smokable hemp. But it's still it, it was so sad to see that farmers couldn't do what they're passionate about because of these restrictions. But I, I think, again, you make yeah. an excellent point on the licenses that are available and that were established in Florida. Because myself being here in California, you know, there's you can stack licenses 100 um, percent with the exception of a lab license. But you can stack licenses, but also you can have singular license. And there's people that very much pride themselves on a wholehearted focus on processing and distribution. Or to your point, people that have a focus more so on the retail side, that's where their strong suit or, right. or where their success they know will be compared to being a cultivator producer. Um, it, it, it does, especially when you put it out, and I love it because you always bring the the legal, like you're just speaking from an objective perspective on these situations and these scenarios. But just hearing you speak about what's, you know, what up till now has been going on in Florida, it just sounds like another opportunity for them to alienate, alienate certain groups, uh, to your point, rather be ethnic, cultural or, or otherwise, right? I mean, that's you're saying, how, well, that's how it's been executed. Um, that's yeah. how it's. Uh, actually landed and there are people who are you know they've gotten tired of waiting there are people who had complete applications way back in 2016 2017 waiting for an opportunity and they still haven't had that opportunity some of them have gone to other states to be successful while they wait for florida Um, another trend uh, that the department of uh as i mentioned the department of cannabis uh, commission in California, they recently released um, some draft regulations around, um, I guess it's to reinforce their um, their pursuit of illegal uh, cultivation centers, et cetera, or they're rolling out a policy around QR codes. Mm-hmm. So there's going to be a QR code for each license holder that needs to be displayed to validate that it's a, a, oh, wow. a, an actual authorized license holder. So that's something nice. that I, I suggest you pay attention to. They put the draft rules out there for public comment, um, and, and that's an opportunity for people to speak out um, from those communities out in Cali and, and let them know how they feel about that and, and what are some um, directions they can go in with, with um, trying to balance you know, having a legal market and making sure that, um, you know, we're doing it in the right way where there isn't too much of a, um, uh, a hostile enforcement taking place. Definitely, definitely. Quite a ways to go, oh my gosh. But I, again, I, I'm hoping that Florida does come around. I mean, that is 
for those that don't know, I think most people do, but you know, yeah, California is the highest populous state and, and followed by, yeah. you know, Texas, but Florida, it's in that top three. I mean, you, these, these four states between California, New York, Texas, and, and Florida, um, they're yeah. pretty pivotal in, in where they're going and what they're doing. And to your point, the framework they're laying out, and it's not to discredit Colorado. You know, I was out there where I legally cut my teeth when they come online with medical and, and not to discredit Oregon and Washington and their efforts. And I think that these larger states are taking certain chapters from those books, so to speak. But um, what these big states, what these large pop states uh, do and how they do it and how they take care of keeping everyone in mind. Because thank goodness it's been it's been coming around and in, in more predominant in D.C. especially, which I love and applaud, you know, the, the whole social equity play like you touched on. That's a huge yeah. factor and that needs to be written in. That can't just be a, oh, well, if we can get to it or if we can do it, you know, it, right. it really is. It's, um, gosh, growing up in the Bay Area, how do I, it, it's so... Um, it's so condescending or contradictory for them to go, okay, now it's legal, but we're going to just alienate it to this group of the elite or rich that can afford Correct. to play in this space. It, it even drives me nuts because there's so many friends that I grew up with that, like me, they they were great young entrepreneurs. Some unfortunately got caught and processed through the system. Others of right. us didn't. But the ones that did to be penalized and not be given the opportunity of what they do and do well, you know, they're just trying to make money. And I have to say, there's a lot of friends I know that, you know, they at some point or another, they dabbled in this industry because of the opportunity and, and the money potential, but also the passion yeah, associated and, with it. And also a lot of patients' lives were, were saved by the illicit market. Yeah. Um, so we yeah. really have to give credit where credit is due. Um, especially when we saw the um, HIV and AIDS yes. um, ep epidemic, um, we can now look back and call it an epidemic. And, and fortunately, there's medicines where that's not even um, as much of a consideration. But there were a lot of um, warriors who um, were actually healing and, and helping people at that time, um, and not because they wanted to be um, dabbling in criminality, but really because they wanted to help people and there wasn't a legal avenue. Now that there is a legal avenue, um, people are embracing it and they want to participate. But it is, um, you know, unfortunate when people who have the, the experience, they have the, the heart for patients and they want to participate in, in an industry, but there, there haven't been enough slots allocated for those individuals. Um, so I think, you know, all of the, the cannabis commissions are are struggling with that. I think we're, we have legislation that mentions equity provisions, social equity provisions. Um, it's a huge opportunity. Uh, Connecticut, they just formed their social equity board and they got off to a, um, you know, a really quick start. And last week they just announced that they've identified their disproportionately impacted um, areas. So they, yeah. they released, uh, I think on Thursday, um, they released a list of what they're going to consider disproportionately impacted areas as a, as a first step to their um, social equity mandate. And the company I work for, um, CSI, uh, you know, I have my law practice, um, yeah. SMP yeah. Law under Dumore Allsworth, but I also, as I mentioned, I'm a business development manager for CSI. But, you know, one of the things that we're working with um, commissions on is equity verification and making sure that, you know, what we have the check in the box that the legislation passed with regards to equity. We have the check in the box that a commission or a group of individuals are responsible for making sure that it happens the right way. And then where we can come in with our screening services is making sure that, 
you know, if it's a veteran, um, if, if it turns on someone being a veteran, we can do the military service record and provide that so they can make a very informed decision based on accurate information. If it's based on a disproportionately impacted area, we can use the uh, residency records and provide accurate records to the commission so that they can say, hey, if the law says you have to have lived in these zip codes for five out of the last 10 years, we can provide that verification. Um, so we're, we're really excited about that possibility and being able to work with these cannabis commissions all across the country to make sure that, you know, we don't have that um, that consistent trend of we have the legislation that passes, we have the equity um, commission and the regs that come out, and then there's an um, application that comes out, licenses are issued, and then there's a lawsuit which stalls it for a year or two years when these people really want a chance to participate. So our objective is to kind of, if we can assist with um, limiting the delays by providing an accurate screening report for these applicants, so you can quit, you know, the, the commissions can, you know, have confidence in what they're looking at to make these determinations and they'll be less vulnerable to these types of lawsuits. And then the applicants can become license holders and, and service their communities that they grew up in. So um, we're really passionate about that. I'm excited about um, being able to provide that service as well. Yeah. And that's just, I, I remember when we caught up and it was kind of cool. You gave me the um, like elevator speech, if you will, of where you are now with CSI. And <clears throat> at first, yeah. to your point, I thought it was just kind of a background. And then you started getting into in depth, especially the association with the social equity programs to be just like you're saying, to be able to to prove what that background really is, because, um, you know, Oakland is a good example. They overall, they've done a great job, uh, you know, and, trailblazers yeah. started at all as far as exactly around equity. Very true. Yeah. And, but I remember one instance, there was one company that obviously found an individual to kind of be a front man of sorts, uh, to check that box. And, um, right. you know, they didn't figure out until after the fact, if they actually had the service you provided, you know, they would have gotten the, right. the, the full picture. They would have known what they're going into because there's always people, <laughs> especially in the state of California with 42 million people, there's always people trying to work the system, no matter what that system is. Absolutely. And that, and that like hurts the system. It's a straw man set up, basically. Yeah. Um, and, you know, the people who lose are the, one of the voters who, who had confidence in, in their legislators who passed this type of legislation and, and the people who are awarded licenses who, we don't want them vulnerable to predatory contracts and exactly. things like that. That's why we do our due, we, we provide due diligence services for license holders when they get first get their license and they're like, hey, what do I do now? I need an investor. Well, we can do the due diligence yeah. on people who approach you so you can at least have a little bit more information about their backgrounds before you literally marry. And possibly, yeah. <laughs> if you don't have an attorney looking over your paperwork, gift them the license that you had, had gotten based on your um, your diversity. Yep. Um, so I think the timing is right for those types of services to be available, not only for, for the cannabis commissions, but also for um, the license holders so they can be confident as they move forward and, and not feel like um, they're very vulnerable or they don't know what they're doing. At least they can have a better idea of who they're partnering with. Yeah. And it all matters because it's, uh, to your point, <clears throat> going back to the early days, you know, especially out here, in Northern California, like you mentioned with the, the HIV AIDS movement, that was Prop P back in 1990, Dennis Brown and, and Brownie Mary. And um, I mean, this this really was like a grassroots, you know, uh, movement to help the people, right? And it was to help all the people. It was not 
uh, discriminatory, unlike the law enforcement side, which, I mean, being a criminal justice major and, and you being a lawyer, I mean, I'm embarrassed to, uh, you know, looking back on what I learned and how things were instituted, where it be all the way back to Anslinger or more recently Nixon and then Reagan, you know, how the, the plant was weaponized when really it is just, it's a natural herbal medicine. And it should be an opportunity to all, and you travel the world and you don't see quite the bias like you do here in the States. And it, it goes deeper. I know it goes, you know, far deeper than just what we're talking about on the surface. But again, you know, for you all to be able to, to be able to help that in some way and to move things forward to bring more of a balanced uh, market, you know, both for the people and for the capitalistic side, you know, obviously, Absolutely. you know, the offerings. Yeah, so. and I, you know, I, I thank you for what you did for the industry, um, you know, prior to legalization and being able to support patients, um, you know, before there was a way that they can be legally supported, um, you know, and also just the fact that looking at your evolution to where you are now with Green Bros, um, and and that high tech you know, almost, I guess we can call it precision agriculture. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, as an industry, we never thought we deserved that, right? <laughs> I know. Now, I, yeah. <laughs> you know, we're, we're, we're true ag. We're like super legit ag. And it's people like you that have the legacy knowledge, legacy relationships that are taking our industry um, into those new areas. And, um, you know, I think the theme for me for the next, probably the next two years will be around harmonization yeah. um, because, the big players are coming in. We're talking big food. We're talking big tobacco. We're talking big dietary supplement. Um, we're talk, still talking big pharma. And, you know, you, before in the, in the early days, we would be like, yeah, you know, you know, big pharma, this, that, and the other. Now there oh, are yeah. conferences right along with us getting educated. Um, you and I spoke at a TPIE together. Um, but it has to be a two-way um, education uh, strategy. So, just like we need to learn from these traditional industries in the areas of OSHA compliance, FCRA compliance, which is what I, I do with our screening services, um, you know, labeling and packaging. The federal government just um, just filed on, I think it was August 3rd, a um, Food Labeling Modernization Act that we should all be taking a look Gosh. at. Um, so it's all about harmonizing with these traditional you know, dietary supplement industries, how they approach things, how they approach their labels, what they're approved to do, you know, um, and, and looking at food overall, what, you know, what are the requirements for food, um, basic human resources with um, FCRA compliance, OSHA compliance. And we need to be as prepared to learn from those traditional industries as they have shown themselves to be prepared to learn from us by coming to our cannabis conferences. Exactly. Um, so that, that's all about harmonization and harmonizing so that we have a sustainable uh, uh, approach and that our companies that are, you know, CEO, you know, patient CEOs, activist CEOs um, that are still around, that they have the tools and the infrastructure so that they can stay around when, you know, it's inevitable that these other industries um, try to get their, um, what they see as their market share. Yeah. And that you make a very excellent point. I, although I know the statement might be a little controversial and the irony didn't escape me, but this was during a, uh, ICBC San Francisco a few years ago and I was up on a panel and, um, something came up as far as conversation on a staying ahead, you know, those that come from the industry that came up in the industry versus to your point, big pharma, big alcohol, big tobacco, big fill right. in the blank. <laughs> right. And I said, right. you guys, I'm like, 
we we got to figure out how to coexist because they're already here. I'm like, I don't know if people in this room know I'm all, but tobacco has bought acres upon acres up in Northern California. Uh, Big Pharma, the largest exporter of cannabis is GW Pharmaceutical. Now, be it medical, but GW Pharmaceutical out of England, you know, the only one to have a U.S. patent that utilizes biomass-based cannabinoids, the other five are synthetic-based cannabinoids. I said, they're already here and they know what's going on. I mean, even look at um, celestial brands with getting into it and buying an LP up in Canada, you know, an alcohol, uh, big alcohol behemoth getting into it. I'm like, they've been getting in for the the last several years, (laughs) you know? I'll tell you, uh, you know, and I know you feel the same way that as an activist, um, just it's keeping that delicate balance between, you know, you don't want to be, you know, be an ostrich with your head in the sand. Exactly. But you do, and and you want to learn from them and harmonize with these traditional industries. But at the same time, we have to, you know, I don't want to say push back, but we need to make sure that this process is a gradual process where we're not putting in place legislation and regulations that immediately exclude the smaller players. Exactly. So how do we do that? We have to understand Deshay, you know, we have to understand what the FDA does. We have to understand what the USDA does to make sure that when these things are being proposed, that we can say, hold on, is it necessary for it to be that level of technology? Mm-hmm. And that kind of ties into the work that I also do with the ASTM, ASTM International Standards yeah. as the, um, the leader for their diversity, equity, inclusion uh, work group as well as the global workshop. That is, um, I did not group. know that. You're, I love ASTM. I've got several friends that that uh, are on yeah. the boards with ASTM. That is awesome to hear. Congratulations! You're Thank always you doing so something. Much. You're like me. You always have like half a dozen irons in the fire. So I should be surprised. We just but... hats. Like, it's like all the college teams <laughs> hanging on the wall, and every day exactly. we're like, this one matches our outfit. outfit. That's how we approach. That is so true. But that's um, how I know how passionate you are. Sure that the industry doesn't <laughs> fall behind, right? Yeah, yeah, very true, very true. Yeah, yeah. So in that work, it's it's about really understanding what standards are. But as standards are being proposed, and you know, some people propose standards based on true best practices. Some people propose standards based on this will give my company an, uh, an advantage, you know, and um, it's just making sure that you say, hey, um, can a small farmer in Mali – um, meet this standard, or yes. do we need to have yep. a uh, sophisticated standard and a basic standard? Yep. One for the, the the farmer in Jamaica or the farmer in um, you know South Africa, you know, or yeah. um, rural Spain, um, and then one for these high tech companies. Those are the types of conversations we need. And um, people just aren't aware of that type of work that we do as as activists, as lawyers. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, it is a lot out of the day to wear, wear all these hats, but if not me, then who? It's who, very who true. Has that? Yes, I have the legal background and training, but I also have the fact that my heart is with the cannabis, the grassroots cannabis industry. My heart's with the patients, and I want to make sure that as we grow as an industry, when we see these headlines for multi-billion dollar deals and things like that, that there is a spot for that craft grower, that there is a spot for, you know, the the the, um, the person who is a small hemp farmer cannot get any processors to buy their stuff. Yeah. And they're they're dependent on cottage industry law. 
mm-hmm. to be uh, legal in their state so that they can they can make a salve. They, they can do their own little self-extraction, get a magic butter machine, make a, <laughs> a salve, and then go to the farmer's market so they don't lose their shirts, so they have something, um, some sense of accomplishment, so they don't have that, um, have to deal with, you know, seeing their crops rot, you know, and, and things yeah. like that. So there's an a strong educational push that needs to, to happen. There's a strong harmonization piece that needs to, to, to um, happen. Uh, you know, I think our industry has always been tied to morality in a sense. And part of that morality is, um, you know, making sure that patients have access, but also making sure that, you know, craft or smaller um, participants um, who just love the plant ha- feel like they have a place. And, and it's a delicate it's a delicate balance as we grow. Um, and fortunately, you know, I'm not the only one doing this work. You know, you're doing this work and, and many others. But I do have to talk about it every opportunity so people know that, one, when you look at Big Pharma and, as your enemy, know that they're sitting next to us in these conferences. What yeah. we need to do is, you know, just like they're picking our brains, we need to pick their brains and understand how their supply chain works. And, and understand how their technology works and understand how the laws, what laws, what federal laws um, impact the day-to-day operations. Um, yeah. and, and that's really where I'm uh, naturally curious. And I try to, as I learn, share. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah. you know, the, the industry is better for it. Yep. And it's, it is it is an interesting point you make. I was just uh, going back and forth with uh, Tim Blake of uh, Emerald Cup out of NorCal. You know, he had okay. put a post up and, and I had commented, you know, it was on uh, LinkedIn and uh, just talking about falling prices in California around cannabis and um, how yeah. we're seeing these wholesale prices between two and 500, which is down from 800 to 1,000, you know, outdoor. But yeah. even light tap, you know, dropping to six to 800 from 1,300 to 1,600. And I told him, I said, you know, at first I was saying, you know, I thought there's going to be an opposite of a glut right now because of the fact that, you know, the climate change has affected the crops and, and our, our water shortages have affected the crops. Um, obviously, you know, after reading what he posted and talking to him, um, you know, that's going to come uh, later on. But one thing that he was talking about, and, and I'm stoked that the conversation went straight to this direction because this is where I'm passionate and you keep mentioning it, but we literally, we call them, you know, cottage licenses, the small scale growers, the sub acre uh, growers, which, um, you, you know, all of them in many counties don't even add up to the throughput of some of these larger million square foot, hundred license holding operations. I mean, there's a few just up yeah. the, just up 101 for me in Southern California. But he is like, you know, I, I just hope that, uh, you know, that these, these cottage growers can hold out until things start moving forward on a, a national or even international level. And I'm like, me too, because I think about a lot of what you're talking on, again, is very centric to this micro macro. And I don't like comparing alcohol, but it's tough not to because they're both, uh, you know, previously prohibition. Yeah, exactly. Canada. Yeah, it's very much. It's all the West. I mean, it's interesting. And that's what I wasn't too surprised, but really excited to see when one of the only provinces up in in, uh, Canada, to your point, you know, that really allowed uh, that opening up of outdoor grow licenses was BC. And it is, to your point, it's from northern British Columbia all the way down through Mexico, to be honest, some of the best cultivars come out of this area. But it's like, my gosh, I hope those smaller guys can hang in because that is, if you do look at 
say wine product or even alcohol, but but wine specifically, you know, some of those most successful, highest quality uh, wines that are out there are coming from smaller scale operations. They're not Absolutely. the big Meridians and and you know Eberly and and all that. You know, they're these smaller even our scales. Our little blueberry farmers here, yeah. or the, um, you know, on the the uh, or blueberry vineyards, I should say, blueberry wine vineyards, and um, uh, here in Florida, in middle of Florida, um, and then looking at ha- Hawaii, you know, going on the yeah. road to Hana to their vineyards. Um, doing passion fruit wine, we have to retain that. It's a cultural necessity, and it it's is. good wine. Um, so it's the same way with with cannabis. I love that you you brought up that point because that's why it's important. That's a great 100%. analogy looking at the wine industry. I love yeah. getting like a you know a, a local wine from a local farm slash vineyard. I love that. Yeah, and it's it and and it leads to agritourism, which is a huge area oh that we look at in agriculture. Yes. And how do we kind of make help people be more aware of where the food comes from, and yeah. where their medicine comes from, where their nutrition comes from, um, and and there's that opportunity. So we we do have to make sure that we're you know having sensors in a thirty thousand square foot grow where you know you look on your cell phone and you know which plants need nutrients that's great and i love innovation and technology but we also need to you know have a place for the people who don't have the funds to do that Um, and that's that's the work that i do the work that i do is really around um compliance and helping um you know players like i again i've worked for some of the larger cbd companies like green roads i was their first in-house counsel um, you know, Sun Flora, also known as your CBD store with a thousand stores in the U.S. I helped them launch four in the U.K. Um, you know, those are big names. However, just like I would work on their compliance pieces, I, I work with small like mom and pop or people who are just starting up and making sure that they're they're sound on the compliance. End. And even in my work with CSI, with the employee screening is because I've seen, you know, the the um, the awards for willful violations. They go in the millions. There's a certain supermarket where they had a $20.5 million uh, willful vi- violation um, uh, award that was given to to uh, employees of her class action lawsuit. So, you know, those are the things I want to avoid for our industry because that'll take out our players. Yep. Um, even the Very OSHA true. violations and, and things like that that may be alleged in um, that's why we need to kind of not say we're so different from traditional industries. We need to harmonize where we retain our cultural identity as cannabis part- industry participants, cannabis growers, cannabis processors, uh, cannabis educators, um, cannabis lawyers, cannabis um, human resource professionals. We retain that cultural identity, but we're still smart enough to know that there are these laws on the books federally we need to know what they are because we want to make sure that we don't have you know um someone who you know sees our success and then files a lawsuit to benefit from our success because we missed something we missed a step exactly true and that's i mean (laughs) to your point it's almost like kind of building in those those referees along the way because I mean, and, and, and again, you've been in it for a minute like I have, and you've seen how much of an evolution has gone on just in the past handful of years, let's say even just since 2015, right, since Washington, Oregon, Colorado, since those early adult use states were established. 
there's been plenty of instances where um, there's been those uh, unexpected loopholes or gaps or misses, rather be in legislation yeah. or in uh, legalization in general, or um, to your point, even on the financing and banking side, you know, we definitely sure. saw the wolves of Wall Street come in and and try to get rich quick, just like they've done with dot-com and, and other evolving uh, industries. And there was definitely some missteps and some people that you mentioned earlier, you know, taking that thing that actually has the most equity that is the license, you know, make sure you know who you're getting in bed with. Because to your point, this isn't a a date. This is a marriage. This is a long-term commitment. And there could be a clause in there. You know more than anyone I know as a lawyer. There could be a clause or stipulation in there that if there is some sort of disresolution that – you know, he with the most money walks away with the, you know, with that license. And that is right. what typically carries, again, the, the greatest value in that so relationship. Yeah. I've had, I've had clients calling me crying. They didn't call me when there was it was time to review the contract. They, yep. they could do it themselves. But call me crying saying, like, you know, I could, they literally could have spent like a couple thousand dollars for a contract review. And now they're, you know, they end up in litigation for like, like, Fifty and a hundred thousand dollars in lawyers to be trying to get back the license that was theirs, and it is heartbreaking. Yeah, because their whole life stops because they just don't want to let go of this license because it's a one it's a once in a lifetime opportunity for some. Um, 100%. And, and they put everything they have into getting it back. And I say, hey, let's on on the front end, let's do our due diligence. You know, get due diligence reporting on on any companies you want to work with. Hire an attorney. It doesn't have to be me. Uh, you know, in your yeah, no, but market, just hire, you know, I also someone in other markets. Yeah, hire someone who has that experience so you do it the right way because you'll pay a little bit up front to avoid like complete devastation and and huge lawyer fees. Yeah. On the back end. No, I did the same thing. I have to say, you know, years ago in my 20s, you know, saved up all this money. I was always hustling when I was younger and trying to be smart, you know, was looking into potentially picking up a franchise. And of course, what I read, and, and again, criminal justice law, you know, we're more so learned about penal code and, and welfare institution code and PC and patrolling all the rest yeah. of it. So it's a different, it's kind of different probably than some some of the stuff you learn, but I learned enough, you know, to understand contracts and legalese and learned enough Latin. <laughs> and I'm looking yeah. through this, I'm like, this does not look, if I'm understanding this correct, this is a 25% back to the franchisor. And to your point, I spent a few hundred bucks. I went to a franchise lawyer and um, he looked through it. He's like, well, yeah, what you're telling me is exactly what I see. And I'm like, I just wanted to be reassured. <laughs> like, I just no, wanted that second opinion. You know? like, you're right on. This is, but this is a language that can correct that. And then yeah. you have the lawyers negotiate between them, you know, on your behalf. So, you know, you get in, you're getting into a relationship with someone. You have a good relationship with them. Everyone's excited. Instead of you doing the haggling or like, you know, you know, it could destroy the relationship or they make them want to walk away because they're like, oh, you were cool before. Now you're not so cool because you want more money. No. Say, you know what? It's my lawyers working on it. I'm sure they'll come to some agreement. Let's go out for a beer or whatever. And it kind of takes it off your plate and you can retain that relationship with people you're working with while the lawyers kind of come up with something that benefits both parties. Um, so yeah, you know, I mean, again, I'm I'm a little biased because I am a lawyer, but you know, <laughs> at the end of the day, I have seen so much of what happens when you don't um, get a lawyer, and and you know, even clauses that say you, you know, what most of these contracts, you are agreeing that you had a chance to get a lawyer, so 
you give up, you're waiving your right to say they were more sophisticated than you because in there you signed off that you had time, sufficient yeah. time to get a lawyer. Just those little things are, are you know, things you need to be uh, aware of. So, But I, I, lo- I love how the industry is growing. I love where we're going. Um, I, I think we've there are a lot of people who are being helped. You know, nobody knew what uh, CBD was, you know, five, six years ago. Now it's so common. There's multi-level marketing people oh doing gosh, yes. it. There's, you know, there's big dietary supplement looking at it and, and things like that. So we've done the work. Like we educated the masses. Um, there's that recognition. And one thing I'm really excited about is oh, it's coming up is I'm going to be speaking at the Canada Science Conference in uh, Baltimore. Oh, very and cool. That's yeah, with uh, Josh Crossney does a great job with uh, with that yeah. conference, and you know I'm going to be going more in depth on like my four P strategy of being a sustainable cannabis company. So when these new players come in, um, that we're still standing, that we still retain our market <laughs> exactly. share, um, and it's about you know um, the people, uh, purity, you know your profits, and um, and policies. Yeah, you know that's that's where you start as far as being um, in compliance and being in, um, having your infrastructure so sound that you have a chance when giants come into your industry that you are sound and you you grow in a very practical, um, realistic way, but in compliance. Yep. In compliance. Um, that's exactly. So it. I'm I'm excited about that talk that's coming up and. Um, I look forward to seeing you in, in um, yeah. Boston as well. I was going to well. say Boston, Nikan. I um, saw that. I'm, they, um, I'm taking over the speaking slot for my CEO. He has plenty to do <laughs> between yeah. now and the end of the year. So I'm like, I'll step in. Then I saw you on the roster. I was like, oh, my gosh, this is so awesome because, my gosh, you and I haven't caught up in person. Um, wow. It's uh, it's been over a year, almost a year and a half. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure it's been right. like almost like close to two years. Yeah, or so. exactly. Like December, what was it? Two, December 2019. Yeah, uh, I think so. Yeah, like it would be a year and a half. Yeah, but, um, yeah. I'm super catch up with you, and um, I think Annie can shout out to Beth uh, Waterfall doing great work in the, in Massachusetts market and beyond um, for her work putting it together, but. You know, we're going to continue to evangelize the message. Yep, and as definitely. our industry changes, our our messaging changes and it evolves. And we need to figure out how to um, not be so comfortable only communicating with people who are like us or they have, you know, 10, 15 years in the industry. We need to be able to understand how to uh, communicate with new entrants, even if it's just to redirect them. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and those are the important things that are happening at these at these conferences coming up. I also have the Southern Hemp Expo um, oh my gosh. in September. I keep um, hearing good things about that. Have, have you done that one before? That's one in uh, Middle Tennessee, right? Every single time. I oh. do it every time. I do uh, right. She, uh, which is usually in the South. It's in Raleigh, North Carolina. And um, oh, okay. I do NOCO, which is usually in Colorado by the same yeah. organizers. Um, Wafa, you know, Moore Spiegel and um, Elizzie Knight, um, and they put on a really great conference. We, they were one of the first um, cannabis conferences to come back um, early, I guess it was earlier this year in person, um, and, and, and they're trying to do the same thing again. So nice. that's like a real deep dive of everything, 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 hemp, supply chain, cultivation, the research side, everything's there. So I'm just really honored to have these opportunities to interface with my beloved 
you know, legacy cannabis companies, but also interface with the, the people who are coming in so we can say, hey, this is how we do things. And this is how we respect our our consumers. This is how we respect our, our customers. And this is how we respect each other. And we recognize that you know about precision agriculture. And we recognize yeah. that you know about um, uh, clinical trials and best practices. And we want to learn that too. So how can we, in this setting, um, have that knowledge transfer so that I'm continuing to be a peer of yours even after you enter despite the fact that you are a giant. Yeah. Yeah. And it's it, to your point, we've, we've gotten so far. <laughs> it's one of those things where to your point, like the big people, you know, or rather they, the experience, let's just say versus the intermediate or novice, you know, we've gotten so far on our, on our own as a, as an industry, yeah. I'm still so impressed, you know, the technology alone and, and not just on the mechanical, you know, like for us, like post-harvest processing, you know, obviously to your point, like, who would have thought that we'd have the level of automation that we do as a solution for these all the way from small boutique to sealed up operations. But also I remember flashing back to when all of a sudden I saw the first um, true processed, I mean, I, I know hydrosol and some of the home homegrown stuff and magical butter and all the rest, you know, all of our friends in that space, mm-hmm. but seeing the first like legitimate tinctures and transdermals and suppositories right. there, I was like, oh my gosh, you guys are doing that. I mean, they, not that we weren't reinventing the wheel by any means, you know, it wasn't the case, but for an industry like this that was so young and, and uh, you know, kind of scaling into maturity, uh, to your point, on the legal side, yes, we know legacy, it's yeah. been around for a century in this country, but but on the legal side, you know, to see how far we've come without getting really any support from those, those quote-unquote right. big guys, you know, um, I think that spoke volumes about just how scrappy the people are. And I think it comes back to, again, you and I definitely fall into this club, when you are passionate about something like as passionate as we are about the plant and the movement around it, again, rather be, you know, recognition of it from a medicinal standpoint or, you know, trying to right that you can't erase, but trying to right the wrongs that happen with the war on drugs uh, for the last century. You know, those kind of things that we can make an impact on. There's so many people that are passionate like us and you see what people can yes, do when they have that passion and they apply it to, to one common goal. You know, so um, I love that. And again, that's that's why, you know, from, from us sharing the stage the first time, I was so impressed because I'm like, wow, you know, not only <laughs> looking at you, Cheryl, not only from from a educated and from a collegiate standpoint, but just from that uh, level of of focus and energy that you put into all these opportunities to make an impact. Like I said, there, there's very few of Thank us you. and you stood out yeah. straight away. I was always so impressed. So it's, it's well, very I cool. Thank you. And you're always uh, ready to share a stage with me and, and a virtual space with me. So I thank you for that and, and all the great work that you're doing. And I, I'm excited that we'll be able to connect in person after, after so long. And um, you know, the fact that you're even doing this interview and because uh, while we've been, inside this industry has been growing nonstop. we were like the biggest milestone is hey cannabis is essential yes so we weren't forced to stop we actually grew we were the fastest growing employer for the whole united states so we were inside we weren't able to have these um you know conferences and communicate in the same way we have but now that we're getting back together it's like so interesting because they're everybody's been in their own labs Yep. doing their own thing. It's so, it's so like true. Now we're sharing what we've done when we were inside. Yes. Um, 
and it, it's a beautiful thing to see. It's a, it's, it's a beautiful thing to see the industry grow up. And that's one of the like models that when I, when I joined CSI, I was like, you know, that's something we're going to have on our marketing material is the cannabis industry is growing up because it yeah, is, it is. We have to, we have to play by the rules. So we stay, you know, we, we need to be able to stay. We need to, again, we're, we're trying to empty the prisons from cannabis. Um, oh my gosh. We're, we're busted for cannabis and, and our victims of the war on drugs. You know, it, we want them out here with us, right? Exactly. But, but we're also trying to grow up. We're also trying trying to mature so that um, we're we're legitimized. Yes. We're legitimized. We're not seen as you know. Uh, we're seeing fewer and fewer Halloween um, ads saying, "Hey, make sure your kid doesn't get a cannabis." Oh candy. my gosh! We, we're never trying to share our candy with kids. Ways it wasn't no. expensive. <laughs> it was so regulated. So exactly. That, you know, exactly. nobody recognizes us. So if we have one sick child, that may just topple the whole thing. So yeah. you yeah. know, we've always been really considerate and, and caring towards um, the being responsible with regards to juveniles um, and and making sure that we're growing in a healthy way, and also um, our collaborations with the medical community has always been there. We've always encouraged patients to work with their physicians. The challenge was, were there enough physicians who were brave enough to tell the truth about oh my gosh. cannabis as a medicine? When you're a king, because that did step out, yeah. they were looked at as kooks and oh my, you know, they totally. Were They're like, you're now, not following the book. <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Like, yes. Like sometimes we have these wins and we just because we're so we're plowing forward, we don't really recognize it. Doctors are getting certified to recommend cannabis. That is huge. Decades in the making. Yeah. Universities are giving degrees up to the master degree level for people to be considered sure. experts in cannabis. That is huge. We did that. We did that. A hundred percent. Um. Yeah. So I'm I'm super amped about where we're going to take this industry. Uh, it's definitely a kumbaya moment. Um, yep. It's definitely uh, a merger of um, industry and academia. Um, I agree. And, and, you know, as well as uh, people do, who just have uh, legacy knowledge. I, I would even stretch and say indigenous knowledge of the plant. And, oh my and gosh. it's a beautiful time. It's a beautiful time to be alive. It's a beautiful time to contribute to the industry. And it's a beautiful time to learn from others. Because I, I know for a period I was like, Every, you know, going to conferences and thinking, okay, here we go, Cannabis 101 again. Yep. Cannabis it's all. <laughs> and like now it's- we're getting to the 201. I swear we're getting into it. And to your point, that international, it's coming. There is so much to be learned. I, I write a yeah. column for MG Magazine now and, and cover the international side, and there's so much to be learned. Well, yeah. Miss Cheryl Murray Powell, Esquire, yeah. I want to yeah. thank you as always. It's always a pleasure catching up, and I'm looking forward to seeing you in a few weeks. Thanks again for joining us here on Cure to so Consumption. Much. I appreciate thank it. Thank you for being generous with your time. I had a blast. Me too. Let me know when it's airing so I can share. So oh, I will. You and your team. I promise. Thanks so much. I appreciate it, Cheryl. Thank you. All righty. Thanks, everyone, again. We will see you next week on the next episode of Cure to Consumption. Thanks again. You're listening to Hayes Radio Network, Cannabis Lifestyle Radio. Thank you.